Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by the founder of Automatic, Tejo Kote. Welcome to the show, Tejo. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Automatic is a car tech company. Uh, essentially, you guys set out to make cars smarter. Uh, I think a good description, a simple to understand description that I heard from you is that you guys were essentially the Fitbit for cars. Uh, started off as software, eventually got into hardware. Uh, you went through Y Combinator in 2011, raised a bunch of money, and were acquired by Sirius XM for over 100 million. Uh, when you met your co-founder Jerry at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, Jerry was working on a small school project at that time. Uh, and this eventually turned on uh, to become, it was essentially a seed that planted uh, what would then become automatic. Uh, what was this school project that he was working on? So it was uh, less of a school project and, and uh, more of a grad school thesis project, right? So he was getting his PhD at that time. And uh, his area of uh, study was to ask the question, is it possible to influence uh, transportation choices? You know, how do people choose when to drive or walk or, or, or run or take a bike or whatever the mode of transportation is? Is it possible to intervene and, and influence that choice? And you know, uh, that was what he was uh, researching and the methodology that he had started thinking about, which I ultimately joined that group to help bring to life was is it possible to just use these smartphones that were just becoming popular back in 2010? Uh, the iPhone had just come out a couple of years ago. And uh, you know, we were asking, is it possible to just install software on those phones and read all the sensor data and upload it into the cloud and use machine learning to automatically detect what the mode of transportation was? Because in that field of study, uh, the standard way of doing that always was through diary studies, right? You essentially gave participants a diary, and at the end of the day, they wrote down, okay, I, I walked this much today, I drove uh, for an hour, and so on and so forth, right? And that wasn't always very accurate, and uh, we wanted to kind of get much better data, and we thought using the smartphone for that uh, was a good way to do it. And uh, that was what he was kind of uh, working on to generate data for his own research as part of his uh, PhD program. And uh, you know, I ended up joining that group to help build all of that technology, and take it live and, and get it into the hands of uh, you know, participants in the research and things like that. And at what point did this transition from a thesis, a school thesis, into, you know, there may be some commercial viability here? This might be a startup. Yeah, look, look I came to the U.S. from India in 2009 for a master's program uh, you know, at uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, but, but partly my goal for coming to the U.S. in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, was I had my own ambitions of uh, starting uh, a company and all of that, right? And so I was always filtering every experience through, uh, you know, that lens of, is, is there a startup opportunity here? Of course, I was not going to jump into anything you know, just for the sake of creating a company. I wanted to be passionate about it and willing to work on it for multiple years and all that kind of stuff. But I was definitely filtering all of the experiences that I was having through that lens. And uh, this was one of them. And you know, as it so happened, as I was working on this uh, uh, research uh, project and, and in this group at uh, Berkeley, I was also, you know, going about uh, life uh, in the U.S. for the first time. As somebody who was new here, I, uh, you know, about a year into my time uh, in, in grad school, I bought my first car out here. And that's when I realized, uh, you know, how expensive insurance is. I bought a, you know, 1998 Honda Accord and I learned that I had to pay almost a month of my grad student's salary for car insurance. And as I was asking myself, why is it so expensive? And that's when I learned all about how insurance companies uh, you know, underwrite their risk and determine how risky someone is. In my case, you know, I was an experienced driver, but they didn't know that. Right? I had never driven in the U.S. There was no data about me in the system. And so 
you know, that's, that was why it was going to be expensive. And as I looked into how insurance companies really price risk, uh, it became clear to me that it, a lot of it happens in the absence of data, right? So they use uh, data points like your gender, your, um, you know, the color of your car and all those kinds of things. And that is that a seed of the idea for me to think that, wait, you know, they were also starting to use hardware devices to collect more uh, information about driving behavior uh, to individualize and, and personalize that, uh, you know, kind of risk calculations. And that was what got me thinking that, hey, we've already built this technology uh, that where you can just install an app on a phone and get access to a lot of good information about how much you are driving and uh, how you're driving and things like that. And, and that was the seed of the idea, which led me to think that, look, it's very clear that uh, the insurance industry as a whole is going to be very data driven in the future and it's going to be a lot more personalized. And, and uh, that seemed like a good opportunity to um, you know, go and commercialize the technology. And that's how I got started. I went basically, I took Jerry out for lunch and I you know, convinced him to come uh, start a company with me. And uh, that's how we got started. So your lens for uh, finding good startup ideas turned out to be pretty solid. At least Y Combinator thought that way. Uh, you guys joined YC in 2011. Uh, and this is this is a while back, right? I mean, this is a, the time where Paul Graham was still involved day to day. Uh, how was your experience with YC like? No, YC was important for uh, us because I was very new. When I landed in, in uh, Silicon Valley, I literally had a, one friend uh, in, in the valley from back home in India, right? He, he, was just, he had just finished his grad school and he was working at Intel or something like that. Right? So that was the extent of my network and connections. And so you know, I, I didn't really know a lot of people. There was a lot of hustling and, and trying to get to know people, build a network and things like that. And Jerry was also not from the Bay Area. And he was you know, a few years into his uh, PhD program. He was from Southern California. And so neither of us really had a network. So the process of building a company would not have been easy from a raising money perspective. You were broke grad students, so none of that would have been easy. And YC was a fantastic opportunity for us to get into that network, right? And I was definitely, I had uh, drunk the YC Kool-Aid uh, and I'd been reading all of uh, Paul Graham's writings and all of that for many years. And, and it was a very kind of obvious next step for us to, once we decided that we were going to uh, start a company, we started working on it. And I spent my last semester um, in my master's program. Basically, I didn't do anything in the master's program. I had all of the credits. I needed a couple more or something like that. And I spent most of my time basically uh, spending on, on the startup that we were uh, working on. And... Uh, and then we applied to Y Combinator. That was a interesting experience because right about when we were starting the process of uh, applying, uh, it was announced that that was the first batch. The batch before us was the first batch where YC just started writing big checks. Mm-hmm. Right before that, it was seventeen thousand uh, dollars, you know, just for the company. And then they, uh, you, know, you had dinners on a weekly basis, and you just went How down there over the summer, and that's pretty much it. What was the check that you guys got? Uh, you know, they. they it was $150,000. I think it still is $150,000. It changed a bit over the years, but that was the first time when the start fund, Ron Conway and Yuri Milner basically came and said, we'll invest $150,000 in every company. And this was in the batch right before us. And, you know, and I remember Jerry and I looking at each other and going, wow, the whole world is going to apply in the next batch now, right? That you know, they're giving out $150,000. And, and so, yeah, it, it was that much more competitive um, when we applied, but uh, thankfully, uh, you know, we were accepted. And, and you're right, it was the early days and it was just the, you know, a few partners at YC who were still doing the interviews and, um, you know, it was uh, an interesting experience. But overall, you know, I would still recommend to every first-time founder that you know, if they got the opportunity to go to YC that they should. And for us, it was uh, really awesome in terms of the, uh, exposure it gave us and the access to connect to that uh, investor network and most importantly the alumni network right so the biggest thing about yc is is has and always been the alumni network right and yeah. so they've always helped each other out and, and that's been a very special part of uh, what, what makes yc uh, great and uh, that was my experience there was it easier for you guys to raise after yc you know the, there is a uh, it, it was not, and then there's a not because of YC per se. And I still joke that we were maybe uh, one of the few companies in the history of YC that did not 
uh, raise a single dollar from an investor we met at Demote, right? <laughs> so, uh, but of course, things all turned out uh, okay. And that's another lesson there, right? So if, uh, and this is something I, I tell a lot of YC founders that I speak with, you know, who are in batches and all of that. And, you know, you really shouldn't, uh, that the time you spend in YC or any incubator for that matter, or in the very early days, uh, it isn't really reflective of ultimately what company uh, you build. Even in even in, in YC batches, I don't know if they still have that practice, but they at least they did when back in 2011 when I went when companies voted for who is the most right. And you know I look at uh, at least I think about the top ten list that that uh, in our batch, and I don't think any of them are still around, right? And and the ones that did end up. Uh, do, doing well companies like segment i think is one that is doing incredibly well now they were in uh you know our batch and we ended up doing reasonably well at automatic and uh there was a there's another company called sift signs uh, which is doing uh, pretty well and, and there are a bunch of those kinds of companies that uh nobody even kind of thought would go anywhere which uh ultimately ended up in a very different place than where we were all in, in uh, during YC, right? And and that was that's I think an important lesson to people is that the early days, um, you know, as you're still figuring out what your market is and all of those things, aren't really indicative of what's going to come. And and a lot of uh, what YC bets on is is not the strength of the idea and things like that, but it's the people, right? It's, it's ultimately the founders, and uh, you know whether you end up succeeding. It depends on your grit, your perseverance, and your kind of uh, uh, unwillingness to just that, right? And and uh, in our case, as I said, we didn't really raise any money. There's a you know, the reason related to how uh, we nearly died in terms of the company uh, and and all the complications that happened, which resulted in us just not being able to raise money at the end of. Uh, uh, that uh, Y Combinator batch in the demo day and happy to kind of go, go into it if, if that's, uh, you think that'll be interesting. But uh, so, no, we did not. We, we ultimately, we were in the summer batch. And so we did not raise in August when uh, the demo day happens. We finally raised uh, by the end of December or January of the next year. And, uh, uh, but yeah, we did raise the seed down ultimately and then kept going. But uh, there was a you know, pretty, uh, scary near-death experience towards the end of YC. I, I really like kind of what you mentioned is that, you know, the, one of the things that you tell founders now is that what, the company that uh, that you are today, I mean, it's not going to be the company that you're going to, let's say, exit with if, if an exit is going to happen. And there's there's so many different ways that this concept can, can apply to different areas of not just running a company, but just in life in general. And it, and it was certainly true for you guys. I mean, you didn't raise a demo day. Like you mentioned, you were one of the few companies that didn't raise, but then you went on uh, to raise from uh, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, as well as Founders Fund. Um, so after having kind of the flop on demo day, uh, how did you manage to convince Andreessen Horowitz um, to, to fund you guys? So, you know, one thing you should realize is that uh, the larger funds, like the Andreessen Horowitz and the Founders Fund, now they are they're happy to write smaller checks and seed rounds in companies uh, because relative to the size of their fund, these are not large amounts, right? Uh, and Decent Horowitz wrote a hundred thousand dollar check into our seed round. Founders Fund wrote a hundred thousand dollar check into our seed round. And of course, where they are very good, and the reason those funds have the reputations that they do are unlike a lot of other funds, they have conviction, right? So they just uh, look at an opportunity and, and founders and they don't really ask stupid questions like who else is investing and then they don't really look for that social proof and they just make that choice and say okay we like the people we like the domain that they're working in and uh, it's a small bet for them a hundred thousand dollar check is not a lot of money uh, for um, a multi-billion dollar uh, fund right and and Anderson Horowitz and Founders Fund were um, you know investments of that nature when we, you know, we were introduced to them and uh, and, uh, you know, they thought there was something. It was very early, right? So we had just this big hypothesis about what might be an opportunity, about a shift uh, that's going to happen in the industry as a whole. And, uh, you know, their reaction essentially was maybe, right? Like no idea if uh, whatever this guy is saying will uh, come true. But if it does, it's going to, it has the potential to be big. 
So this is an option, right? So let, let's just write a $100,000 check uh, and, and uh, stay close uh, to the company. And, and so that's kind of uh, how that happened. And of course, you know, the fact that we had uh, those two investors made raising the rest of our round uh, much easier and we closed uh, the seed round and, and we were kind of very close to running out of money and, uh, you know, almost uh, dying. But the fact that uh, those two investors came in uh, suddenly made us uh, on paper very, very attractive. There was this company that now had Y Combinator and Andreessen Horowitz and Founders Fund as investors. And boom, we went from this ugly duckling to, uh, you know, everybody else was now very interested because especially in the uh, angel kind of investing uh, environment, social proof matters a lot. And because not everybody is sitting and yeah. doing a lot of their own diligence, a lot of uh, you know, decisions about investments happen based on the who, you know, who else is investing and who are the other smart people who are involved. And okay, if they think uh, this is a good company, then I don't have to think too much about it and I'll write my $25,000 check or $50,000 check too, right? And so you know, that kind of really helped move things along for us. Uh, but yeah, so... But but long term, you know, while it was good uh, at that stage for us to have those investors, and this is something I, you know, tell founders, and something I've been practicing myself in, uh, you know, the uh, company I'm building now, uh, that's Airbase. I don't think it's it's a good idea for uh, you know very young companies to take money from very large funds from uh, uh, you know funds that could theoretically come and raise uh, lead your next round of funding, right? So if you have taken $100,000 from a multi-billion dollar fund and they choose not to invest in your next round, the series A round, you know, that's a risk. That's a signaling risk because every other investor is now going to ask you, why not? Like they are an investor in your company. They know who you are and, you know, uh, you're a portfolio company. And if they aren't stepping up to lead that next round, what's wrong with you? Like this, something is not going right uh, in your company. And, and so, yes, Andreessen Horowitz and Founders Fund did not follow on in any of our subsequent rounds. There are you know, lots of reasons related to that, part of which is we started off as a software company. So initially, the hypothesis for our company was you can install just software on a smartphone and then you can get a lot of good, uh, valuable information about driving behavior and you can use that in a variety of ways. But along the way, we decided... Uh, for, uh, again, many uh, reasons that that is not the approach that we were going to take. We were going to go make hardware, right? And so we were going to kind of create a hardware device and, and go build a connected car platform and things like that. So the business we became... And what was the um, reason for this pivot? Like, what was the reason why you guys wanted to get into hardware? It, it, it was mainly because that initial hypothesis, I couldn't prove in a compelling enough way. I couldn't show that that hypothesis that we could go sell to insurance companies and convince them that the data that we could provide from a smartphone-based approach was, uh, you know, a good approach was not something that, uh, uh, you know, we, we I spent a good year trying to do it, and uh, we just could not make uh, enough progress on that. And the big pushback we were always getting was around the quality of the data. Like when you are using a smartphone, you can't say with one hundred percent certainty which car I was driving. I was in the driver's seat of the passenger speed. There were all of these issues with data quality, which, of course, going from, you know, 0% data to uh, 80, 85% accuracy, you would imagine is still better. You could use that, uh, you know, to improve your models and things like that. But the insurance industry didn't really think that way, at least not back in 2011. We were definitely early by a few years. There are now other startups that have taken the same approach of just doing it via smartphone. And the industry has evolved, thinking has evolved. And, and uh, so that's another lesson about timing. But the lesson we took away from that point, and, and that year that I spent trying to really make this model work was, uh, what the other thing it taught me was that, wait, this is, isn't just an opportunity in the insurance industry, right? This is an opportunity where every part of the larger automotive ecosystem is starving for data, right? So the car is the most expensive computer we all own, but it's, not connected for the most part. Even today, the majority of cars on the roads are not connected. You know, they're owned for 15, 16, 17 years. They don't turn over uh, that quickly. And, and every part of that multi-trillion dollar ecosystem would love to have data from the car about how it is driven, the location, where, it, where is it, and uh, all of that kind of stuff, right? And, 
uh, but it's not available. And so the larger opportunity that I wanted to go after was to say that okay, insurance is one use case, one application in this larger uh, world you can create where there is a platform for connected car applications. And if you can be this uh, uh, you know, cloud-based platform that ingests all of this raw data coming out of the computers and cars, and then you process it, massage it, and make it into usable forms, there are so many solutions you can build for the insurance industry, for the maintenance industry, for the you know, fleet industry, for consumers, and you know, on and on and on, right? Like that data that is coming out of cars, there's a lot of different ways uh, in which you can use that to improve how uh, that multi-trillion dollar ecosystem operates. And we decided we wanted to go after that. And, and to do that, we decided, look, if the long-term path is, you know, we, we knew that cars are going to be connected someday. It's kind of an accident of history that you know, cars became such powerful computers without any connectivity uh, in them for such a long time. But that was going to get fixed. It is getting fixed now. A lot of cars that come off the production line today are connected. And, but in the interim, right? So because when we were getting going, there wasn't any uh, connectivity in most cars. And so we decided we're going to have that Trojan horse of a hardware device that connects to a standard port that every car has, and it will get the data uh, out of that car. And, and that also solved the reliability issues and things like that because you know, this was data coming from the computer of the car. It was like very accurate and, and high quality data. And so for all of these reasons, you know, we kind of expanded that vision and we felt uh, we could go after a bigger opportunity in a bigger uh, market. And so we decided that so we're going to go make that hardware. And we also decided we're going to uh, start with the consumer application and use case. But, but yeah, so that's kind of the, that was the motivation for, uh, you know, the, the, uh, change uh, in in kind of uh, approach that we were taking, but going completing my larger point, I was trying to make. Uh, you know, we became a hardware company essentially, right? And you know, this was for me uh, mostly ignorant. Uh, I, I didn't really know that most VCs don't want to invest in hardware companies at all. So by the time we were ready for a Series A round of funding, uh, we were a very different company, and that was not a good fit. Uh, you know, for Founders funds of the world, and and uh, we were also well and truly in the automotive uh, industry now, right? And that is also another big area that we really try to stay away from for for very good reasons, as I learned. And uh, and I don't really blame them. It's a, this is a tough space to build a venture funded uh, business in, and uh, you know that's the reason why. But it became hard as, as part of that process, right? People are like wait, and this in other words, investing in your seat around why aren't they leading? The series A and then that kind of stuff, right? And, uh, you know, anyway, so the larger point being think hard about who you're taking money from and if they can uh, lead that next round of funding, but they choose not to, you've probably just made your life uh, a lot harder, right? So, how was the series A raise then? I mean, you, got, you guys had, like you mentioned, you had Andreessen, uh, Horowitz, Founders Fund, they're now not investing in a series A, they invested in seed. Uh, you're now a hardware company, and you're now in the automotive space. So, I mean, these are three difficult things <laughs> to, uh, to have um, as a company when you're fundraising. Did you guys raise the series A? Or if, if you did, how was the raise? Yeah, so uh, ultimately, the majority of my financing strategy in, ended up becoming, uh, you know, the. Uh, uh, I ended up raising from a strategic investor, right? right? So what I found, while your traditional uh, you know, VC firms were kind of frowning upon all of these uh, disadvantages that we had from a business model perspective or the industry we were selling into and things like that, there's the whole world of strategic investors in the automotive space, the large companies in the automotive space who saw that change coming in their own industry, right? And then and many of them had these, uh, you know, venture arms um, associated with them. And they were a lot more likely to place those bets because that was partly their job, right? So they had to be at the forefront of some of these changes happening, you know, in the automotive industry. Of course, you know, sometime around late 2014 or some uh, early 2014, uh, Silicon Valley also became enamored with the automotive industry, mainly because of uh, self-driving cars. And that's so I ended up being a whole boondoggle where like tons of money is spent with most of the investors who jumped on that bandwagon are going to lose 
uh, a lot of that money and that's a i guess a longer uh, conversation but uh, you know my strategy for financing ended up focusing mostly on uh, strategic investors and the majority of the money that i raised came from those strategic investors i basically gave up uh, on on uh, sandhill road and the traditional uh, you know venture capitalists who weren't really a good fit uh, you know for the kind of business that you we were building and 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 i ended up raising from strategic investors i think the largest investor in the company uh, was uh, uh, again an auto insurance company called usaa right so they're a you know well known uh, auto insurance company that's their primary product they have other financial services products mainly targeted at us military uh, you know, families and but they're quite large and they have a very active uh, successful venture uh, portfolio of course that there's a whole other set of lessons around uh, the costs of taking money from strategic investors and uh, you know whether that is a good idea or not and and uh, the pitfalls that you have to be aware of when you take money from a strategic investor and and that's i guess a, a different kind of point but uh, but yeah so that's how i ended up raising subsequent rounds of funding after i did i want to go back for a second to the transition uh, that you guys made from going from being just a software company to now being a software and a hardware company so you guys started off as a software only b2b company right your clients were insurance companies uh you the idea essentially was that we now have uh the, the iphone came out that has a bunch of new sensors everybody's driving is going to be having these sensors because they have the, the smartphone with them and uh we're going to be able to use these sensors to know when a person is speeding uh to know when a person is uh breaking hard or when a person is making a sharp turn and we can put all of this information together and we can make uh, a driver's profile give a score essentially to this driver and this would in effect uh, the, the bottom line would be we would know how good of a driver or how risky of a driver this person is uh, which would then influence the insurance companies and then from this uh, and, and this technology by the way exists now and is being used by like uber uh you know when an uber driver is driving he can get a notification that he's speeding or uh that he was taking too many like harsh turns uh but then you guys pivoted to a hardware company uh which now turned you not only a hardware and a software company but also a consumer company right the uh the the target audience for you guys then became not only insurance companies but also consumers so was the was the plan to shift from uh, entirely from b2b so forget about insurance companies but to only focus on b2c uh, section or were you guys trying to juggle both so you know uh, i uh, ultimately let uh, let my experience of trying to sell to uh, the insurance companies during the first uh, year of the company uh, lead me to come up with a go to market strategy which with the hindsight that i have today i would not repeat right and the reason we even did the uh, consumer product the logic went something like this right so and then it it sounded very fair and sound and and i was able to convince a lot of people to give me a lot of money to go do that but given everything i know now uh, you know i think there would have been a simpler easier uh, go to market strategy for us to build a a uh, larger business long term and if the core goal was to go after this larger opportunity around creating the canonical connected car platform right mm-hmm. that one of the concerns that i heard from insurance companies as i was engaging with them was always this issue around privacy this issue around why would the consumer give you access to this data remember this is still back in 2011 and this is the very early days of even in the insurance industry thinking about these usage based insurance products and how do you use data to um, you know underwrite people and the question big question always was why the hell would people share this data it's very private data why would somebody willingly give this data uh, to an insurance company you know they wouldn't do it and one of the big concerns even the exe- all the executives i was speaking with at the insurance companies had was you know, the problem we really want to solve is uh, you know how do we add some value to the customer right so how do we make sure that we uh, reduce this concern that uh, consumers have around sharing data with your insurance company and this is a real problem right and of course the last 10 years has shown that this is that everybody initially thought it would be because uh, as it so turns out you know in the insurance market a lot of the good drivers are subsidizing the bad drivers because there is not enough good quality data about who the good driver is and who the bad driver is right and so but 
if you're a good driver and if you feel you're driving you're, you're, you're paying too much you are more willing to share that data if you can get a big discount of like uh, many hundreds or thousands of dollars depending on how many cars you have and things like that right and you are willing to share that data with your insurance company and at least that's uh, what uh, you know most people have figured out uh, over the last 10 years even though the overall penetration of these kinds of data driven products hasn't really lived up to uh, what everybody thought it would be it's happening a lot more slowly in general the insurance industry moves very slowly but anyway long story short the uh, but that was what i decided to go in and get into that uh, uh, ecosystem because uh, the larger hypothesis then became look we want to create this connected car platform which where consumers and the owners of these cars are willingly connecting our hardware device to their car and giving us that data that we can then use to unlock and and uh, work with many players in the ecosystem including the insurance industry and maintenance and all these other parts of the ecosystem right so step 1 was to deliver a compelling enough experience to consumers and earn that right to be in their car right and so that is kind of the approach we thought would be the right go to market strategy and then we would initially be a b2c company but then once we got in the car and once we had shown that you know consumers were finding enough value to put us in the car then uh, the b2b opportunity would open itself up and that's why we ended up creating that consumer product and you know we actually i think did a good job in the sense that we uh, created a high quality enough product that we were selling it in the apple stores and and best buy and all these major retailers and It, it, but in in the largest scheme of things, we never got to the level of a product market fit which would sustain that consumer business and a hardware kind of uh, sales business on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even even a business like a Fitbit, if you look at it, the kind of scale that they they had to get to to make it a viable company for it to ever become a public company and things like that, they were literally selling hundreds of millions of uh, you know units of their products. to make it worthwhile right and it's just generally very very hard uh, to build a consumer hardware company and then that was not obviously something that i understood deeply and but anyway along the way we did the part of that hypothesis did come true that we showed uh, uh, through our uh, work that uh, we had built a high quality enough product there was value to consumers and there was a small maybe not a huge uh, market of passionate users who were going to buy the product that was becoming apparent pretty quickly but we were able to get enough attention from the b2b segment like the insurance folks and the uh, car dealerships and all of these other distribution channels for us because the only option they had to get access to any of this data to then build services on top of that was to take the approach that we were taking of adding some value to customers right and so we were then able to take that consumer product and get into distribution deals with insurance companies and all these other parts of that automotive ecosystem so that part started working out uh, well but i still think it is a very complicated uh, go to market strategy because ultimately having your company be a b2c company and a b2b company mm-hmm. is just very hard like for a variety of reasons like you know that's another uh, longer conversation and uh, i feel like we could have done it in in a better simpler way and Uh, and and if i look back now i truly don't think we ever had product market fit on the consumer side of the business i think we ultimately did on the enterprise side of the business but uh, and recently actually serious xm which acquired the company they killed off the consumer uh, product completely i'm actually surprised they kept it alive for uh, the last 3 uh, 3 and a half years because that side of the business while it was very sexy and gave us a great brand and all those kinds of things It, it was never profitable even by the time we was we sold the company right so the enterprise side you know was was where the, a lot of the value was and you know even today uh, that's integrated into serious xm and you know i hear uh, that's going uh, well but the consumer side never did right and but uh, but it brought its own benefits but if i look back and say what did i learn from that experience like the big lesson was do not have a very complicated go to market kind of approach right and then if, if you think that you're going to have it be to see kind of an approach and it be to be kind of an approach and you're just killing yourself right it's just not going to be easy to execute uh, at that level mm-hmm. and uh, you know that was the big takeaway so you guys as a company you've been through 
a lot of ups and downs, uh, a bunch of pivots from, from software to hardware, uh, B2B to B2C, a lot of changes. But to your point that you mentioned, uh, that you made uh, earlier on in the episode is that investors, they fund people, right? That's the main thing, especially in the early days of the company. And you guys, as people, as founders, you persevered. Uh, the company uh, was acquired in 2017 by SiriusXM for over $100 million. Uh, can you tell us about how the acquisition went down? Yeah, the longer term goal for anybody who starts a company, especially if you take venture capital, you know, you are signing up to go build a large company in a large market, right? And uh, and it's okay if you don't want to, that's totally fine. But uh, you, if you don't want to, you probably shouldn't be taking venture capital because that expectation that you're signing up for, and, and uh, this is something that most founders make a mistake around not. Uh, really understanding their investors' expectations when they take the money, right? And the typical uh, VC wants to invest, only wants to invest in companies that has the potential to go be a large public company, right? Of course, they do realize that not every single one of their investments will get there, but on a blended basis across the portfolio, even if like 20% of their portfolio actually accomplishes that, okay, then they've done their job of returning uh, the entire fund and then a lot more uh, on top of that to your investors, right? And so that is something that, you know, if you have taken venture capital, you have made that bargain and and um, we did too. And, but along the way, it started to become quite clear to me, right? This was like your, you know, uh, your six of the journey as you we were going through it, that it would take a lot more time for us to get to that eventual outcome of being a large kind of, uh, public company, even if we were to think about it as uh, the value of the business is half a billion dollars, a billion dollars and things like that. Where were we from a revenue traction perspective? And then how long would it take to get there? You know, the writing was on the, on the wall was pretty clear to me that it would take a lot more capital and, uh, you know, a lot more time for us to get there. And somewhere along the way, uh, you know, the question became, uh, do I have uh, the interest or the patient to keep going at this for another uh, six years. We're you know, already five or six years into that journey. And because that's how long it would take, right? And I ultimately decided that you know, probably not. And, uh, uh, but even before that, as I was, and I, I've always been kind of a planner, right? Because I think it's important uh, when, especially when you have taken money from others and you have a responsibility to return that. As a founder, when you take the money, you're making a promise to the investors that trust me, I will give you not only your money back, but a lot more than that, right? And uh, at least I a promise quite seriously, and uh, which means that you can't just let things uh, you know go to chance, right? So you you have to ask yourself, uh, what is my plan A to return that money? What is my plan B, plan C, plan D? You can't just say my plan A is I'm going to go build an awesome company, large company, I'll go public. That is my plan. I'm only going to focus on that. I'm going to go after it. I think the right thing to do is to always have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D for uh, what's going to happen in all these uh, contingency scenarios and the upside scenario, the downside scenario, and always be thinking about it. And, and one of those plans for any, uh, I think, uh, uh, founder should be, uh, you know, all the, all of the, as you're looking at all the exit scenarios, uh, you know, the go public is always the aspirational, awesome outcome, but it just math shows and, and past data shows that the vast majority of companies will not go public, right? They don't go public mm-hmm. and, and uh, the vast majority of companies actually just die. They don't actually go anywhere, but, uh, but there's also a healthy chunk that see an exit through acquisition. And so, you know, what is your option there? And you have to be smart about uh, mapping that out, right? And you also have to realize that when an acquisition happens, especially when a large company buys a small company, you know, it, it's not that a small company is selling itself to the large company. That is not what happens. The large company chooses to buy the small company, right? So in other words, you know, as, as a company, you are bought, you don't sell, right? And so you have to now very carefully map out whoever might be interested in buying you. Right and why, and of course this shouldn't be the sole focus of your attention. It's distracting from what you're trying to do in the here and the now in terms of building the company. But you have to, you know, ask yourself that question and and strategically map out. Okay, what are all the different industries 
involved in, in what we're doing and the technology that we have and the platform that we have and the team that we have and who are we strategic for? Why are we strategic for them? What other kinds of acquisitions have they already made? And what is their longer term strategy? And if you, you know, if it's a public company, you can listen to a lot of their uh, executives come and talk about how they're thinking about the future of their business, right? And so you have to really understand and map out who might be a good fit for it. And you also have to understand that, you know, when companies get bought, it just doesn't happen uh, in a matter of days or weeks or something like that, right? That these big companies are not sitting on the sidelines waiting to come and throw a lot of money at you. It just doesn't work that way. And you have to build those relationships well in advance, right? So you have to, you know, and by the time we sold the, the between when I had the first conversation with Sirius XM, I think that was somewhere in, uh, you know, the third quarter of 2015 or something like that. But ultimately when the, uh, they acquired us in the deal closed, that was in uh, you know, April of 2017, right? And so it was almost a year and a half before uh, they acquired us when, was when I first met somebody at Sirius XM at an executive level, mm-hmm. right? And so this is something you have to kind of, uh, nurture and build those relationships over time because, again, another important insight is that uh, companies don't buy you, right? It is people in those companies who buy you, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to kind of get to know those people. You have to understand what is their motivation, what challenges do they have ahead of them, what gaps do they see in their own ability to execute against their plans, and do they, are you showing them how they can fill the gap? Uh, Know, if they acquire you and um, here's why you should buy me from day one right that, that is usually not the conversation the conversation th- that usually happens is here's why we should partner right i realize i'm small you're big and here's what i bring to the table here's what you can bring to the table and we should partner right i'm not really looking to sell the company but here's what a partnership will do and you know and then you can use that um, you know framework of a partnership to really figure out what do they want and what can you bring and how do you benefit from each other? And you know, at some point, if there is, even when we started talking to Sirius XM, yes, there's always in the back of my mind, the fact that, yeah, this is a large company that someday might buy us. Like I didn't walk into every meeting here to sell my company to Sirius XM, right? That started happening, uh, you know, maybe in the last uh, six months or something like that. But uh, in the initial days, it truly was about a partnership where you want to understand uh, their uh, kind of roadmap, what they're trying to accomplish and things like that. And, uh, and I was doing that with multiple companies. Right? I was trying to build those relationships with multiple companies. And, and all of the offers that we ultimately received before we uh, sold uh, Automatic all came from these kinds of relationships that I had been building for a while. Right? And uh, you know, it, it, none of the last minute uh, discussions and things like that uh, that we got into resulted in anything concrete, right? And and because they didn't just know the company as well, they didn't know the people as well, they didn't know the technology as well, they didn't understand, you know, the strategy and how we could come in and and uh, uh, you know help solve important problems for them. And those things take time, right? And so my biggest piece of advice for uh, you know founders would be understand that and work on that, you know very early, I start that process early, right? Because if you have six months of runway, it's probably too late to start that process now, right? You will get into the situation where you are not controlling your own desk, right? So, you know, and then um, the acquirers are not uh, stupid, right? And, and yes, they have, you know, large company dysfunction and bureaucracy and all of that kind of stuff, but they didn't become large successful companies by being stupid, right? And right. You know, they, they, they know how to navigate these processes. And, you know, and, and if you don't have the negotiating leverage or any of it, and if you have a two months of runway and things like that, you're just going to put yourself in a position where you don't have a lot of uh, uh, you know, uh, leverage in the outcome that you want, right? And, and so that's pretty much how that process went down for us. And by late 2015, 2016, it became uh, apparent uh, to me, that uh, be a much longer journey, and and, and the other uh, lesson for me was, and I was just personally burnt out, right? And you know, for the entire six-year journey uh, at Abase, for me, it was just an, like an extension of my personality, right? Like the company was my life, and my life was the company. All I did was all I did was work, and 
and and that is not the right way to go about it right i'm doing things uh, you know very differently with my current company but because this is a marathon right and these things take time and maybe if i wasn't burnt out maybe if i had the energy and uh, all of those kinds of things i might have signed up for a longer journey and maybe you know automatic would have been uh, a much more valuable company than what it ended up uh, being but uh, you know it is what it is and around that 2015 uh, time frame i started building these relationships as a, a plan b and 2016 was an especially tough year right and it was uh, you know if those who were around that year in the startup and and venture capital ecosystem know that there was kind of a mini uh, you know down market at that point it was it became very difficult to raise money and uh, you know we were not yet profitable and uh, you know we were not able to raise money the terms that we wanted that year i ended up doing a layoff a laid off a quarter of uh, you know my team and uh, you know then the questions around should we keep going should we try to raise more money or should we evaluate selling the company and getting value uh, for what we have already built those questions became you know a lot more prominent and uh, and yeah so long story short uh, we ultimately decided that we would run a process along with the kind of the process to um um see if we could go add more capital to the company and keep going because this is the other thing that becomes important is when you have already raised 30 million dollars and thankfully i hadn't been too greedy with the valuation right and but if i we had gone and added another 15 million and we wanted an up round right and we wanted to kind of have a higher valuation then the outcome expectations that we would have set you know we would have had to go sell the company at 2x of that number right or 3x of that number and so but to get to that newer 2x 3x value it would have taken us another 3 years or 4 years to build up revenues to that level and things like that and then even 3 or 4 years might have been an optimistic outcome right and so so the other so that that's the other lesson there is you know be very careful about uh, how much money you raise what valuation you have and things like that because there is a very good chance you're going to put yourself in a position where you're stuck right you, you can't really uh, you know do that in terms of uh, spending another 4 years 5 years to go but we did have that option to say that given the current last round valuation you know we still can get good offers and sell the company where everybody makes money it's, it's a good outcome in the grand scheme of things 115 million dollars up it's a very first world problem to say that's not a good outcome and then all of that but by silicon valley terms you know it, it's not the uh, biggest outcome that uh, people are going to remember uh, forever and things like that right it's uh, it's definitely good is life changing for uh, a lot of people involved in that and the investors made money and all of that was great and which is all good i'm thankful for that but uh, in, in the grand scheme of things you know if if i had maybe been uh, smarter and more experienced about a lot of these things you know, probably the outcome would have been even better right but uh, anyway so let me stop that i know this ended up becoming a long-winded answer but uh, hopefully that answered your question no no it, de- it definitely does and you know i appreciate you being very open kind of about the the mistakes that you made and the things that went wrong um and th- this this was your first company right for first real company that you actually raised money for and that uh that uh um that you were growing uh so mistakes are expected um you touched on your new company uh, a little bit so after the acquisition of uh, automatic uh you did not sit around for too long you were you got back into the startup tranche so to speak very quickly and you started a new company called airbase uh what's this company about Yeah so you know Airbase uh, we are a spend management platform right so essentially what we do is uh you know we help companies just spend their money in a better smarter more efficient way and this is essentially I'm solving a problem that I faced building uh, automatic and um, you know I, I didn't know much about finance or financial operations when I started working on uh, automatic but given the fact that we were building hardware we had manufacturing operations we were building up inventory there was working capital and cash flow management issues and i was kind of forced to understand those things you know better and uh, and what i saw in terms of how the financial operations happened was frankly underwhelming and frustrating right and as i was we were scaling up and building the company 
and and of course i didn't have the time to do anything about it back then it kind of went into the back of the uh kind of uh, my mind and uh, into an evernote document of ideas that you know, i maintained at uh, the time and uh finally when i had the time to come back and i was thinking about okay what am i going to do what am i going to do next uh this was the kind of idea that i kept coming back to because i felt like this was a real problem that uh, most businesses had and and i also had a whole set of criteria around what i would not do like you know i would not do a hardware business again i would not do anything in the automotive industry again even though i had built up a bunch of experience and there were opportunities that i could have potentially uh, gone after uh, i just you know part of the joy of doing this for me is is the learning that comes from doing something new right so i decided this was uh, a good opportunity and i spent a lot of time talking to dozens of controllers vps of finance um, and and uh, CFOs and, and things like that, and uh, you know, I was basically convinced that my hypothesis that the, the simple act of how companies spend money—it's too complicated today—but there's an opportunity to make it a much, much, much better experience, not just for the finance and accounting team, primarily for them, but actually for the whole business, right? And uh, you know, today it's just too complicated, and you know, especially for mid-market companies that we target, from say 50 to a thousand employees. So they have too many different systems where money gets spent. Like they're requesting and approving things on Slack and email, and you know there's a corporate card, there is an expense reimbursement system like Expensify, there is a bill payment system like Bill.com, and you know, have four or five different systems that financiers are wrangling with, and it's just a terrible experience overall, right? And and there are good reasons why it evolved that way, but uh, I just feel like over the next ten years it won't be that way, and it shouldn't be that way, and and that's kind of the problem that we solve we kind of bring these software workflows and payment systems and deeply embed them together and you know, that also looks like it's a larger trend that's happening now where software and payments and kind of uh, software workflows and fintech it's all coming together and maybe we are a part of that uh, trend and uh, that's basically uh, what we do as a company and you know, things are going great we have again a venture funded company and i've been fortunate enough to uh, attract some great investors and we have some amazing customers like uh, you know, gusto and segment and you know, get around and front and uh, on and on right there's a, a whole bunch of them and uh, and you know i'm having fun with this journey now you guys are through year into it and you know like you mentioned the, the company seems to be doing pretty well uh big clients uh raised a bunch of money i think you guys announced your series a was a 20 25 million uh just two months ago so congrats on that uh where can people find you thank you and you know airbase.com and that's uh that's the website and uh you know if, if you are listening to this and you work at an early stage company we are currently focused on mostly software services technology venture funded kind of companies in that ecosystem they have a whole host of them as customers already and uh, you know please you can go to abase.com to learn more and uh, and if you want to find me uh, i guess uh, linkedin is a good place to find me just search for my name and uh, you'll find me and i'd be happy to connect with the listeners awesome thanks for coming on the show tejo andrew thank you so much for having me thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode subscribe and share it with your friends Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.